Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537 is the uh, voicemail number. Ratchetandratchet at gmail.com is the email address. Uh, and Ratchet Book Club is where you can find us on Twitter. Uh, we are a little more than halfway through with the book. Uh, we will probably be more than that by the time we get done with the next seven chapters. Because, you know, it's a children's book. The chapters are tiny. They're like two to three pages. Sometimes less. Like, they had a one-page chapter, and I was like... And then I was like, hmm. And then I was like, oh. Because, you know, it just bled right into the next one. That's how they do. Cherry Spinelli, trendsetter. Chapter 23 of Maniac McGee. I didn't mention that. But it's on the title, so I shouldn't have had to say it. If I had to say that to y'all, like, seriously, dude, Grayson got the crimpets. Oh, yeah, let's talk about crimpets. So, Butterscotch crimpets, they first got to California, like, five years ago, and I totally blamed them for nothing because they're overrated. They're really good. They taste like, you know, y'all can have your Butterscotch crimpets. You can take them. I'm cool with that. I will take a ho-ho. Nope, scratch that. Not even a ho-ho. Better than ho-hos. I'll take a zinger. Zingers are incredible. Like straight up magic. Not the chocolate ones. Because the chocolate ones are like... Ugh. Like if y'all can see me, I'm doing the hand signal like Drake did in the uh, that meme. The hotline bling meme. Ugh. But... The vanilla ones, or even better, the raspberry ones with coconut on them. I don't even like coconut. I'm eating those like, why are we doing this? I know this is so wrong. Wait, my mouth is full because I'm usually talking with my mouth full of raspberry coconut zinger. Why am doing this? I know it's so wrong. I feel so right. That's me and zingers making out in the back of the car while you go around looking for butterscotch crimpets, which are good. They don't taste like butterscotch. I know what butterscotch tastes like. My grandma and every single black mother in the church. And when you say black mother in the church, you're not talking about like my mom. You're talking about the the, the ladies in the church that, that are like 70 and up. The black mothers in the church always have butterscotch. So I know what butterscotch tastes like because they give you butterscotch to shut up. It was a bribe. We took it. We all knew the game. But butterscotch candies do not taste like butterscotch crimpets, and that's why I big up to you zingers. If you want me to ask you to sponsor you, just hit me up. I mean, if you want me to ask you to sponsor me, just hit me up. I'm here. I don't even eat crimpets if you pay me right. Anyway, chapter 23. Grayson got the crimpets all right. He bought a whole box of three packs. With 10 packs of the box, that was 30 butterscotch crimpets. Maniac thought he must have climbed out of that buffalo pen right into heaven. Then Grayson took Maniac home. Home for the old man was a two mills YMCA. He lived in a room on the third floor, but he didn't take Maniac up there. He took him downstairs to the locker room. He got him a towel and a cake of soap told him to take off his rags and pointed the way to the showers. Maniac stayed in the shower for an hour. He hadn't done this since his last bath with the little ones. 
He smiled at the thought of them shrieking and splashing. The shower needle stung his scratches, but it was a good, welcome back to town stinging. When Maniac finally forced himself in the shower, he found the old man waiting with clothes. Grayson's clothes. I called the U.S. Army in the hall away them buffalo rags, he said. They come in with gas masks on, and they use tongs to pick them up and put them in a steel box, and they took the box away to bury it at the bottom of the first mine shaft they could come to. Maniac couldn't stop laughing. Neither could Grayson, especially when he got a load of the kid drowning in his clothes. An hour later, after a minor shopping spree, Maniac had clothes of his own. For the rest of the afternoon, they cruised around town, talking and eating crimpets. So, said the old man, now what are you going to do? Maniac thought it over. How about a job? I could work for the park, like you. Grayson didn't answer that. He said, where do you think you're going to stay? Maniac's answer was prompt. The baseball room. It's perfect. A tiny idea was beginning to warm its way into Grayson's head. He could barely feel it as it brushed by all the claptrap in his brain. He ignored it. He said, What about school? Maniac was silent. Some butterscotch icing had stayed behind on a wrapper. He scooped it up and mopped it from his finger, wishing it was Miss Bill's and not his own. Grayson, who was not comfortable asking questions, was even less comfortable waiting for answers. I said, what about school? Maniac turned to him. What about it? You gotta go. You're a kid, ain't you? I'm not going. But you gotta. Don't you? They'll make you. Not if they don't find me. The old man just looked at him for a while with a mixture of puzzlement and recognition, as though the fish he had landed might be the same one he had thrown away long before. Why, he said. Maniac felt why more than he knew why. It had to do with homes and families and schools, and how a school seems sort of like a big home, but only a day home, because then it empties out. and You can't stay there at night because it's not really a home. And you can never use it as your address because an address is where you stay at night, where you walk right in the front door without knocking, where everybody talks to each other and uses the same toaster. So all the other kids will be heading for their homes, their night homes, each of them, hundreds, flocking from school like birds from a tree, scattering across town, each breaking off to his or her own place, each knowing exactly where to land. School. Home. No. He wasn't going to have one without the other. If you try to make me, he said, I'll just start running. Grayson said nothing. What the kid said actually made him feel good, though he had no idea why. And the brushing little worm of a notion was beginning to tickle him now. He kept on driving. Chapter 24. They got to the band shell just as they finished the last of the crimpets. Grayson looked at his watch. Guess it's time to quit the job I never did today. Time for dinner, too. Grayson was joking, but Maniac was serious when he piped, Great! Where to? Dumbfounded, the old man drove back out of the park to the nearest diner, 
where he sat with a cup of coffee while the boy wolfed down meatloaf and gravy, mashed potatoes, zucchini, salad, and coconut custard pie. Grayson had a way of jumping into a subject without warning. It was during Maniac's dessert that he abruptly said, Them black people, they eat mashed potatoes too? Maniac thought he was kidding, then realized he wasn't. Sure, Miss Bill used to have potatoes a lot, mashed in every other way. Miss who? Miss Bill, do you know the Bills? A 728 Sycamore Street? The old man shook his head. Well, they were my family. I had a mother and a father and a little brother and a sister and a sister my age and a dog. My own room, too. Grayson stared out the diner window as if digesting this information. How about meatloaf? Huh? They eat that, too? Sure, meatloaf, too. And peas and corn. You name it. You name it! Sorry. Cake? Maniac beamed. Oh, man. You kidding? Miss Bill makes the best cakes in the world. Grayson's eyes narrowed. Toothbrushes. They use them? Maniac fought not to smile. Absolutely. We all had our toothbrushes hanging in the bathroom. I know that, said Grayson, impatient. But is theirs the same as ours? No difference that I can see. You didn't drink out of the same glass. Absolutely we did. This information seemed to shock the old man. Maniac laid down his fork. Grayson, they're just regular people, like us. I was never in a house of theirs. Well, I'm telling you, it's the same. There's bathtubs and refrigerators and rugs and TVs and beds. Grayson was wagging his head. Ain't that something? Ain't that something? It was after dark when they got back to the baseball equipment room. The worm in Grayson's head had long since ceased to be a tiny tickle. It was now a maddening itch. As with all itch worms, it would only exit by one route, the mouth. He said, uh, I was thinking, uh, maybe you want to come over to my place. This here floor is pretty hard. He tapped his foot to show how hard. The grizzled, gray old park hand could never know how much Maniac was tempted or how deeply the offer touched him. Neither could Maniac explain that the bad luck he always seemed to have with parents had led him to the conclusion that he'd better stick to himself. Oh, it's not so bad here, he said. Look, he lay down on the chest protectors and closed his eyes. Ah, just like a mattress. I could feel myself dozing off already. And then, not wanting to hurt the old man's feelings, he quickly added, Hey, I told you everything about me. How about you? He pulled Grayson's coat over himself. A bedtime story. Grayson snorted. Story? I don't know no stories. Sure you do, Maniac prodded. About yourself. You know about you. Everybody has a story. Not me. Grayson was edging for the door. I ain't got no story. I ain't nobody. I work at the park. 
You line baseball fields? Yep, I do that. You live at the Y. You drive the park pickup. You like butterscotch crumpets. Grayson shook his head. Not as much as you. I was just eating to be friendly, so you wouldn't be having to eat them all by yourself. And there's another thing about you, Maniac joked. You're a liar. They both laughed. Grayson opened the door. Wait, called Maniac. What did you want to grow up to be when you were a kid? Grayson paused in the doorway. He looked out into the night. A baseball player, he said. He turned out the light and closed the door. I wonder if that's how um stereotypes work. Well, I'm pretty sure it is. Like, you see somebody who's lived on the other side, and the only way to really quell those stereotypes is to ask those questions. But nobody ever asks those questions, even though they got somebody in front of them who knows the answer. They just keep on assuming. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Chapter 25. In the morning, Grayson bought Maniac an Egg McMuffin. Oh, God. Oh. I mean, they're not so bad. Also, Egg McMuffins are in here, which means McDonald's is in here, which makes it canon. McDonald's is in Maniac McGee. I wonder how much they paid for that. Huh? But Egg McMuffins, oh my God. So here's what I used to do when I was a kid. My dad used to take us on trips across from, from L.A. to the tip of, like, the northern tip of Washington. And the only thing we had to eat were the McMuffins that he would buy in the morning when he stopped off to get himself something to eat. That's why I hate egg McMuffins. About halfway through the trip, I decided that it would probably be better if I got a sausage and egg McMuffin. And my dad said it was okay, which was cool with me. So what I would do is I would get the sausage and egg McMuffin and I would just take the egg and throw it out the window. I'd get two of them. I'd eat one for breakfast. And then the next one I would wrap up and save until it was about noon or one or whatever time I got hungry and then I would put some ketchup on it and I would treat it like it was a different tasting cheeseburger. I mean, I didn't think of it as a sausage sandwich, which it really was. I just thought of it as a cheeseburger because I had cheese and a sausage and it was on an English muffin, which we didn't have any trouble eating burgers on anyway because you make do with what you got. I said too much. But egg McMuffins, oh, I mean, they're okay now, I guess. Ugh. I just, here's my thing about fast food restaurants. If I go into a place where they make burgers, I should smell burgers, right? Somewhere? Somehow? How are they cooking those burgers at McDonald's? Like they put them in a drawer and they take them out and they're cooked. How does that work? You cannot tell me that they're not just dried burgers, that they're just moisturizing back into life. I should get a job there long enough to find out how they do that and then quit. That's what I did at Taco Bell. I mean, I didn't get a job there just to quit. But I got there and found out how they made the powdered beans and the, and the chalupas. And that was enough for me. Especially once I accidentally spilled boiling grease on my new J's. It wasn't boiling. It was just the dirty grease from the vat that I had to clean out. In hindsight, nobody told a 17-year-old kid that they shouldn't wear J's to work at a fast food restaurant. I never knew when I was going to see some girls. 
Chapter 25 In the morning, Grayson bought Maniac an Egg McMuffin and a large orange juice. The orange juices are banging. He bought the same thing for himself, so they ate breakfast together in the baseball equipment room. You sent me to bed without a story last night, Maniac kidded. Grayson brushed a yellow speck of egg from his white stubble. I don't got no stories. I told you. You wanted to be a baseball player. That ain't no story. Well, did you become one? Grayson drank half his orange juice. Just the miners, he muttered. Maniac yelped, the miners? Never can make it to the majors. There was a frayed weariness in the old man's words, as though they had long since worn out. Grayson, the miners. Man, you must have been good. What position did you play? Grayson said, pitcher. This word, unlike the others, was not worn out at all, but fresh and robust. It startled Maniac. It declared, I am not what you see. I'm not a line-laying, pickup-driving, live-at-the-Y, bean-brained parkhand. I am not rickety, whiskered worm chow. I'm a pitcher. Maniac had sensed there was something more to the old man. Now he knew what it was. Grayson, what's your first name? The old man fidgeted. Earl. But call me Grayson, like everybody. He looked at the clock on the wall. I gotta go. Grayson, wait. I'm late for work, and you ought to be in school. He was gone. Grayson returned at noon, bearing zeps and sodas, and was not allowed to leave until he told Maniac one story about the minor leagues. So he told the kid about his first day in the minors with Bluefield, West Virginia, and the Appalachian League, Class D. Can't get no lower than that, he told the kid. That's where you broke in. Don't even have D-ball anymore. He told about thumbing a ride to Bluefield, and when he got there, going up to a gas station attendant and asking which way to the ballpark. And the gas station man told him, Sure, but first got to ask you something. You're a new ball player, right? Just coming on board? And Grayson said, Yep, that's right. And the man said, I thought so. Well then, you're just going to want to make your first stop right over there, he pointed across the street. That there restaurant, the Blue Star. You just go right on in there and sit yourself down and tell the waitress you want the biggest steak on the menu. And anything else you want too. Because it's all in the house. The Blue Star treats every new rookie to his first meal in town free. He gave a wink. They want your business. Great, Grayson thought. And he did just that. Only when he got up and left, the restaurant owner came running after him down the street, all mad at Grayson for skipping out. And when Grayson told him he was a rookie just picking up his first free meal, the owner got even madder. Seemed the gas station man was a real card and liked to welcome dumb rookies with his little practical joke. I would have fought the gas station man. I would have came back and I would have been like, yo, thought you were funny, huh? Funny little joke, funny ha-ha. Huh? 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 Pay them. And then when they didn't pay, I would have been like, man. And then I would have left. It's not really what I would have done, but I'm sure there's kids listening to this story. And that's how it came to be that when the Bluefield Bullets took the field that day, they did so without the services of their new pitcher 
who was back in the kitchen at a Blue Star restaurant doing dishes to work off a 16-ounce steak, half a broiled chicken, and two pieces of rhubarb pie. After a story like that, Maniac couldn't just stay behind, so he tagged along when Grayson went back to work. He helped the old man raise a new fence around the children's petting farmyard. When the park superintendent came around and asked about the kid, Grayson said it was his nephew come to visit for a while. The superintendent, who managed the budget, said, We can't pay him, you know. And Grayson said, Fine, no problem. And that was that. From then on, Maniac was on the job with Grayson every afternoon. They raised fences, mended fences, hauled stone, patched asphalt, painted, trimmed trees. They ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner together, sometimes in the equipment room, sometimes at a restaurant. They spent weekends together. All the while, Grayson told baseball stories, insisting all along, I ain't got no stories. He told about the Appalachian League and the Carolina League and the Pecos Valley League and the Buckeye and the Mexican Leagues. About the Paducah Twin Oaks and the Natchez Pelicans and the Jessup Georgia Browns and the Laredo Lariats. All minor league teams. Minor league baseball. Sleazy hotels. Sleazy buses. Sleazy stadiums. Sleazy fans. Sleazy water buckets. Curveballs and bus fumes and dreams. Dreams of the majors. Clean sheets and an umpire at every base. Funny stories. Happy stories. Sad stories. Just plain baseball stories. The happiest story being the one about Willie Mays' very last at-bat in the minor leagues before he went up to the New York Giants in immortality. Well, it was old Grayson himself who had the last crack at Mays in the ninth inning of a game with Indianapolis. And what did Grayson do? All he did was set the say-hey-kid down swinging on three straight curveballs. The saddest story was the one about the scout who came down from the Toledo Mud Hens. The Mud Hens had a roster slot, and the scout had a notion to fill it with the pitcher with the wicked curveball, name of Earl Grayson. This was Grayson's big chance. For the Mud Hens were class triple A ball, one short step from the majors. The night before the game, Grayson spent half of it on his knees by his bed, praying. And even five minutes before the game, in the dugout, he bent down, pretending to tie his shoe, and closed one eye and prayed, please let me win this ball game. Which was something, because he had never gone to a church in his life. God must have fainted, he said to Maniac. And indeed, maybe God did, or maybe he only listened to major leaguers. Because Grayson took the mound and proceeded to pitch the flat-out awfulest game of his life. His curveball wasn't curving, his sinker wasn't sinking, and his knuckler wasn't knuckling. The batters were teeing off as if it was the invasion of Normandy Beach. Before the third inning was over, the score was 12-0, and Grayson was in the shower. He was 27 years old then, and that was the closest he'd ever get to the big show. He hung on for 13 more years, a baseball junkie, winding up in some hot tamale league in Guanajuato, Mexico, until his curveball could no longer bend around so much as a chili pepper, and his fastball was slower than a senorita's answer. He was 40, out of baseball, and, for all intents and purposes, out of life. All those years in the game, 
and all he was fit to do was clean a restroom or sweep a floor or lay a chalk line or far, far down the road tell stories to a wide-eyed homeless kid. Okay, so Willie Mays was in the minors for like two months in 1951 before he got called up, which means that Grayson pitched against him in 1951. And then, after time, they don't even say how much time, but let's just go with that because they say the saddest story. They don't say when. But a saddest story, after that, he spent 13 more years pitching, which means he was he played minor league baseball from at the very least 1951 until 1964. And then he got out of the league. Um, and now he's telling stories to a wide-eyed homeless kid in Pennsylvania, which means it's... Anywhere from 1964 to this book was written in 1990. It's got to be like 65, 66. No, because Grayson's not a young person. He's not 40. He's like 60. And that's the thing I'm thinking about. 1964, which would make it like 1984. And I can see that happening in the divide of Pennsylvania. Like, y'all got to see Pennsylvania to believe it. But... Chapter 26. It was impossible to listen to such stories empty-handed. As soon as Grayson started one, Maniac would reach into one of the equipment bags and pull out a ball or a bat or a catcher's mitt. Sniffing the scuffed horsehide aroma of the ball, rippling the fingertips over the red stitching, it's hard to say how these things can make the listening better. But they do. And for Maniac, they did. And of course, as happens with baseball, one thing led to another. And pretty soon, the two of them were tossing the ball back and forth. And then they were outside, where the throws could be longer, where he could play pepper on the outfield grass at a legion field. The old man pitching, the kid tapping grounders, where he could shag fungos, the old man popping high flyers, the kid chasing them down. Okay, I had to check. A fungo is the act of tossing the ball upward and hitting it as it descends. Okay. And now the stories are mixed with instruction. The grizzled, rickety coot showing the kid how to spray liners to the opposite field. How to get a jump on a long fly even before the batter hits it. How to throw the curveball. Stiff, crooked fingers that grapple clumsily with crimpet wrappers curled naturally around the shape of a baseball. With the ball in his hand, the park handyman became a professor. As to the art of pitching, of course. The old man can show and tell, but he can no longer do. Except for one pitch, the only one left in his repertoire from the old days. He called it the stop ball, and it nearly drove Maniac goofy. The old man claimed he discovered the stop ball one day down in the Texas League and that he was long gone from baseball when he perfected it. Unlike most pitches, the stop ball involved no element of surprise. On the contrary, the old man would always announce it. Okay, he called in from the mound. Here she comes. Now keep your eye on her, because she's going to float on up there. And just about the time she's over the plate, she's going to stop. Now, nobody else ever hit it, so don't you go getting upset if you don't either. It's no shame to whiff on the stop ball. And then he'd throw it. Well, of course, Maniac knew that most, if not all of that, was blarney. And just to make sure, 
he'd watch the ball extra carefully. There sure didn't seem to be anything unusual about it, not at first anyway. But as the ball came closer, it did somehow seem to get more and more peculiar. And by the time it reached the plate, it might just as well have stopped because Maniac never knew if he was swinging at the old man's pitch or at his speech. Whatever, in weeks of trying, he never hit it out the infield. It was October. The trees rimming the outfield were flaunting their colors. The kid and the geezer baseballed their lunch times away, and the after dinner time down the weekends. And every night, as the old man left for his room at the Y, he would grouse, You ought to go to school. And one night, the kid said back, I do. And that's how the old man found out what the kid was doing with his mornings. He had noticed the books before. Rows and piles of them that kept growing. But there being books, he didn't think much of it. Now, the kid tells him, you know the money you give me. Each morning, he gave the kid 50 cent or a dollar to get himself some crimpets. Well, I take it up to the library. Right inside the door, they have these books that they're selling. Cases of them. Old books they don't want anymore. They only cost five or ten cent a piece. He pointed to the piles. I buy them. He showed them to the old man. Ancient, back-broken math books, flaking travel books, warped spellers, mangled mysteries, biographies, music books, astronomy books, and cookbooks. What's the matter, said the old man. Can't you make up your mind what kind you want? The kid laughed. I want them all. He threw his hands out. I'm learning everything. He opened one of the books. Look, geometry, triangles. Okay, isosceles triangles. These two legs, do they look equal to you? The old man squinted. He nodded. Okay, but can you prove it? The old man studied the triangle for a full minute. If I had a ruler, maybe. No ruler. The old man sighed. I guess I give up. So the kid proved it. Absolutely dead center proved it. Two days later, while playing Pepper in the Legion infield, the old man said to the kid, So why don't you go ahead and teach me how to read? Chapter 27 The story he told now was not about baseball. It was about parents who were drunk a lot and always leaving them on his own. It was about being put in classes where they just cut paper and play games all day. About a teacher who whispered to a principal just outside the classroom door, this bunch will never learn to read a stop sign. Right then and there, as if to make the teacher right, he stopped trying. The part I didn't tell about Bluefield, I was only 15. I ran away. The kid and the old man climbed into the pickup. They made three stops. First, they stopped by the park office at the zoo, where Grayson told the superintendent he just wanted to work part-time for a while, in the afternoons. Fine, said the superintendent, just so you don't expect to get paid full-time. So they went to the library book sale racks and bought about 20 old picture books, such as The Story of Babar and Mike Mulligan's Steam Shovel and The Little Engine That Could. Just between you and me? All of those books will likely be on Meow Me Reads podcast. 
Check her out. She's pretty dope. Then they went to Woolworths for a small portable blackboard and a piece of chalk. Within three days, Grayson had the alphabet down pat. The shapes. The sounds. After a week, he could read ten one-syllable words. But he was reading them from memory. It took another couple weeks before he began to get the hang of sounding out words he'd never seen before. The old man showed an early knack for consonants. Sometimes he got M and N mixed up, but the only one who gave him trouble day in and day out was C. It reminded him of a bronc some cowboy dared him to ride in his Texas League days. He would saddle up that C, climb aboard, and grip the pommel for dear life, and old C, more often than not, it would throw him. Whenever that happened, he'd just climb right back on and ride her some more. Pretty soon, C saw who was boss and gave up the fight. But even at their orneriest, consonants were fun. Vowels were something else. He didn't like them, and they didn't like him. There were only five of them, but they seemed to be everywhere. Why, you could go through 20 words without bumping into some of the Shire consonants. But it seemed as though you couldn't tiptoe past a syllable without waking up a vowel. Consonants? You knew pretty much where they stood, but you can never trust a vowel. To the old pitcher, they were like his own best knuckleball come back to haunt him. In, out, up, down. Not even the pitcher, much, much less the batter, knew which way it would break. He kept swinging and missing. But the kid was a good manager and tough. He would never let him slink back to the showers, but kept sending him back up to the plate. The kid used different words. But in his ears, the old minor leaguer heard, Keep your eye on it. Hold your swing. Watch it all the way in. Don't be anxious. Just make contact. And soon enough, that's what he was doing. Nailing those vowels on the button. Riding from consonant to consonant. Syllable to syllable. Word to word. One day, the kid wrote on the blackboard, I see the ball. And the old man studied it for a while and said, slowly, gingerly, I see the ball. Maniac whooped, you're reading. I'm reading, yipped the old man. His smile was so wide he had to break it into sections to fit it through the doorway. That's dope. Chapter 28. The first book Grayson read cover to cover was a little engine that could. It took almost an hour and it was the climax to a long evening of effort. At the end, the old man was sweating and exhausted. The kid's reaction surprised him. He didn't jump and yippee like he did after the first sentence. He just stayed in the far corner, seated on a stuffy and lumpy equipment bag. He had kept his distance all during the reading, letting Grayson know there would be no cheating. He had to do it on his own. Now he was just staring at Grayson, a small smile coming over his face. And now he was making a fist and clenching it towards Grayson. And he said, Amen. What's that? Amen. What's that for? Who prayed? I learned it in the church I used to go to. You don't have to wait for a prayer. You say it when somebody says something or does something you really like. 
he hopped off the bag, thrust both hands to the ceiling, and shouted, Amen! And suddenly the kid was hugging him, squeezing with the power you never expected was in that little body, unless you had seen him pull a baseball almost to the trees in dead center field. Okay, said Maniac, clapping his hands. What'll it be? I'll cook. Whatever you want. Maniac had a toaster over now, compliments of his whiskered friend. In fact, little by little, Grayson had brought him lots of things. A chest of drawers for his clothes, a space heater, a two-foot refrigerator, hundreds of paper dishes and plastic utensils, blankets, a mat to sleep on, which the kid ignored, preferring the chest protectors. In time, the place was homier than his own room at the Y. How about a corn muffin, Grayson said, choosing something easy on his bad teeth and aching gums. Maniac went to the bookcase to serve the pantry. One corn muffin coming up. Toasted? Yeah, why not? Butter? Sure, butter. Something to drink with that, sir? Nah, muffin's enough. The apple juice is excellent, sir. It was a great year for apples. Live it up, thought Grayson. Yeah, okay, apple juice. Coming right up, sir. After the snack, the kid proved himself as good a mind reader as a cook. Won't stay overnight, he said. It's late. While he growls about so preposterous an idea, the kid laid down the mat he never used, bulldogged him down to it, pulled off the shoes and draped the blanket over him. He protested. This is supposed to be yours. The kid patted the chest protectors. I'm okay. I'm okay. And he knew that was the truth of it. The old man gave himself up willingly to his exhaustion and drifted off like a lazy sky-high fly ball. Something deep in his heart, unmeasured by his own consciousness, soared unburdened for the first time in 37 years. Since the time he had so disgraced himself before the mud hen scout and therefore named himself a failure. The blanket was there, but it was the boy's embrace that covered and warmed him. When somebody does something you really like. Amen, the old man whispered into the cornmeal and baseball-scented darkness. Chapter 29 For most of November, Winter toyed with two mills, whispered in his ear, tickled it under the chin. On Thanksgiving Thursday, Winter kicked it in the stomach. But that didn't stop the old man and boy from joining the 10,000 who thronged to the stadium on the boulevard to see the traditional high school football game. The Arctic air laid panes of ice over the crayfish edge pools of Stony Creek. The effect was the opposite on human noses. Maniacs and Graysons ran like faucets, and not a handkerchief in sight. They deputized their sleeves and grabbed handfuls of napkins from the refreshment stand. Two Mills won the game, thanks to a last-minute 73-yard touchdown pass from quarterback Dennehy to James Hands Down. From the instant his old trash-talking sandlot pal cradled the ball in his long brown fingers, Maniac was jumping on his seat, screaming trash at Hans' pursuers every step to the goal line and glancing about to make sure Miss Bill wasn't listening. So, is the high school integrated? Like, okay, so it's Two Mills High School, and we know Hands Down is black, and they never said what color uh, dinner he was. But Dennehy is, traditionally, 
a, a white last name. I mean, I'm not just guessing when I say that. The last name Dennehy is a surname of Irish origin. So, I don't know. How was the high school integrated but nobody else was? Like, with sports where they put it down, with school where they put it down, you would have thought they would have segregated it. That's the first thing in this book that now hits me. Anyhow, I'm glad the hands down is there and Dennehy. By the time they got back to the baseball room, they were nearly frozen. But the freeze was good, because it made the warmth of the little apartment all the more welcome. Within 15 minutes, the space heater had the place positively tropical. While in the toaster oven, their five-pound Thanksgiving chicken was already beginning to brown. A pair of hot plates and a squad of pots were pressing to action, and by mid-afternoon, the two were sitting down to feast on roast chicken, gravy, cranberry sauce, applesauce, spaghettios, raisins, pumpkin pie, and butterscotch crimpets. Maniac thought of Thanksgiving's past, and sitting around a joyless table, his aunt and uncle is silent and lifeless as the mammoth bird they nod on. He said this grace, Dear God, we want to take this opportunity to thank you for the best Thanksgiving dinner we ever had. Well, I ever had. I guess I shouldn't speak for my friend Grayson. He peeked across the table. Grayson, he whispered, is this your best one too? The man opened one eye. He shrugged. Don't know. Ain't tasted it yet. Maniac glared, rolled his eyes upward. His, Grayson! The old man flinched. Uh, yeah. He squinted one-eyed at the chicken. Yeah, I, I guess it is. The best, Maniac prompted. Yeah, the best. Maniac went on. And we want to thank you for this warm house and for our little family here and for Grayson learning to read. He's already read 13 books, as I'm sure you already know. And one more thing. If you could find some way to let the Bill family know I'm wishing them a happy Thanksgiving... I'd really appreciate it. They're the ones on 728 Sycamore Street, in case there's any other bills around. Amen. Amen, said Grayson. They stuffed themselves silly, then collapsed and listened to polka music. Grayson had brought over a record player a week before, along with his entire music collection, 31 polka records. Grayson loved polkas. Of course, one cannot listen to polka music for long before getting up and dancing, which is what the two Thanksgivers did as soon as their bloated stomachs allowed. They danced and they laughed, record after record. Whether it was the polka that they danced is another question. It was nearly dark, both of them having recollapsed when Maniac said, Is there any paint around? Guess so, said Grayson. What for? You'll see. Can you get some? In a brush? The old man dragged himself up. What color? How about black? Five minutes later, the old man was back. Got brown. That do? Fine, said Maniac. He opened the can, stirred the paint, put a jacket on, grabbed the brush, and went outside. Grayson followed. He watched the kid paint on the outside of the door in careful strokes. 101. Maniac stepped back, admiring his work. 101, he proclaimed. 101 Banshell Boulevard. Chapter 30 If Thanksgiving was wonderful, Christmas was paradise. 
By now, Grayson had officially moved out of the Y and into 101 Banshell Boulevard. Thanks to his long acquaintanceship with the locker room attendant, he and Maniac were privileged to continue using the Y shower facilities at their pleasure. For decoration outside, they nailed a wreath to the door. There was only one small window, but it had no seal to hold a candle, so some spray snow had to do. Inside, it was another story. Santa's elves themselves would have felt at home. Strings of popcorn swooped across the ceiling. Evergreen branches flared at random, dispersing their piney aroma. Wherever there were a few vacant square inches, something Christmassy appeared. A matchbox crochet, a porcelain Santa, a partridge in a pear tree. One day, Grayson dragged a pair of tree limbs in and started sawing away. When he was finished, a wooden reindeer stood in the room, big enough for Maniac to ride. Of course, the tree got the most attention of all. By the time the two of them finished trimming it, their tree-trimming instincts having languished for so many Christmases, hardly a pine needle could be seen under the tinsel and balls and whatnot. In fact, though they were delighted with their effort, the urge to trim was still full upon them. One room was simply too small to hold the spirit bursting. So they went outside and crossed the creek and tramped the woods until they came to a fine and proper evergreen. And there, their footsteps muffled by the carpet of pine needles, their every breath and whispered word arrayed in frosty white. They trimmed their second tree. This time, the ornaments were nature's brilliant red and yellow necklaces of bittersweet, pungent pine cones. Red wine clustered of sumac berries, abandoned bird-bodied boats of milkweed, and delicate thumb-sized goblets of Queen Anne's lace. Chapter 31 It was still dark when Maniac awoke on Christmas morning. Within an hour or two, the holiday would come bounding down the stairs and squealing around the tinsel trees of two mills. But for the moment, Christmas bided its time outside a pure presence. Maniac shook Grayson awake, but stayed the old man's hand when he reached her on the light. They bundled themselves and ventured into the silent night. Maniac carried a paper bag. Snow had fallen several days before. In much of the town, it had been plowed, shoveled, and slushed away. But in the park, along the creek, the woods, the playing fields, the playground, it still lay undisturbed, save for the tracks of rabbits and squirrels. Beyond the tall pines, stars glittered like snowflakes reluctant to fall. They visited their tree. They stood silently, just to be near it, letting the magic of it drift over them. In the pine-patched moonlight, the Queen Anne's goblets looked for all the world like filigreed silver. They walked the creek woods all the way to the zoo, meandering wordlessly throughout the snowy enchantment. As if by design, they both stopped at the same spot, above the half-submerged, rooty clump of a fallen tree. Somewhere under there, they knew, was the den of a family of muskrats. The old man laid a pine branch at the doorway. Maniac whispered, Merry Christmas. They visited the animals at the zoo, at least the outdoor ones, wishing them a happy holiday. The ducks seemed particularly pleased to see them. By the time they came to the buffalo pen, Don was showing through the trees. Before the old man finished saying, want a boost? 
Maniac was up and over the fence. If Mother Buffalo was glad to see the fence-hopping human again, she didn't show it. But Baby came trotting on over, and the two of them had a warm reunion. Before leaving, Maniac reached into the paper bag and brought out a present. For you, he said. It was a scarf, or rather, three scarves tied together. He wrapped them around Baby's neck. Next year, I'll get you stockings for your horns, he grinned. If you have them by then. A final nuzzle, then he was headed back over the fence. I'm sure those folks in the uh, zoo, Maniac does not know how much he's just making their life just horrible. Because they probably think there's a ghost. Like half the rations of the uh, food they put out for the animals gets eaten, but the animals don't, weigh, don't gain any weight. You know they monitor that, right? And now they're going to go and come back, go home for the night, enjoy Christmas, come back, and somebody has put a, 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 a scarf around the baby buffalo's neck. Like, you trolling me now. They gotta be like, who is this kid? Or who is this person? It's a ghost! They headed back home as the town awoke. Breakfast was eggnog, yummers, and hot tea, and cookies, and carol, and colored lights, and love. As in all happy Christmas homes, the gifts were under the tree. Maniac gave Grayson a pair of gloves and a woolen cap and a book. The book did not appear to be as sturdy as the others lying around. The cover was blue construction paper, and the spine, instead of being bound, was stapled. The text was hand-lettered, and the pictures were stick figures. The title was The Man Who Struck Out Woolly Mays. The author's name which Grayson read aloud with some difficulty, was Jeffrey L. McGee. Maniac, in his turn, opened packages to find a pair of gloves, a box of butterscotch crimpets, and a spanking snow-white never-ever-used baseball. He was overjoyed. He rushed up to the old man and hugged him. The old man put up with that for a second, then pulled away. Hold on, he said. He went to one of the baseball equipment bags and reached in, tunneled down to the bottom, and came up with another package. This one wrapped crudely in newspaper. Hide and listen, he said. Didn't know if you're the kind of kid that sneaks looks. Maniac tore it open and gaped helplessly when he saw what it was. To anyone else, it was a ratty old scrap of leather, barely recognizable as a baseball glove, fit for the garbage can. But Maniac knew at once this was Grayson's, the one he had played with all those years in the minors. It was limp, flat, the pocket long gone. Slowly, timidly, as though entering a shrine, the boy's fingers crept into it, flexed, curled the cracked leather, brought it back to shape, to life. He laid the new ball in the palm, pressed glove and ball together, and the glove remembered and gave way and made a pocket for the ball. The boy could not take his eyes off the glove. The old man could not take his eyes off the boy. The record player finished the Christmas polka and clicked off. And for a long time, there was silence. Five days later, the old man was dead. Nine one six six three three one five three seven. Wretched and Ratchet at gmail.com is the email address. 
Ratchet Book Club is where you can find me on Twitter. You can leave a review on Podchaser, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher. Please leave reviews, y'all. I put in a lot of work, and I just feel like I deserve them. I mean, if you're listening right now, please just go ahead and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. I do greatly appreciate it. Um, I'll holler at y'all later. Y'all be good. Peace. to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name, you slip.